You're listening to the eighth episode of Season 2 of the Wicked Podcast. I'm Mike Moore. As in Season 1, this podcast goes into a strict Christian upbringing and traditional isolationist church climate not working out, but it is not intended as an attack on faith. In fact, it is mainly about trying to retain some connection to God despite everything and everyone. It is also about depression, words, and music. Each episode is me explaining what was going on in my life that occasioned the writing of a song from my concept album, Peter Gray Grows Up. I'll continue for the two of you who are still listening. Episode 8, Proud Someday. I have recorded the narration for all of my previous podcast episodes with the microphone nestled in a pair of big feather pillows to deaden the room sound. Today, I glued up a bunch of acoustic treatment on my walls, and so I'm giving that a try, au naturel. No more pillow talk from me. We all wrestle, I think, to varying degrees with parental acceptance. I'm sure my experience of it is not at all unusual. I was much more like my mother in many ways, and so she always seemed fairly pleased with me, but I was not most of the things my father hoped a son would be. I wasn't into sports, farming, and cars, and I was into books and poetry and music and painting. My dad is old school, and so from a young age, he always feared I'd grow up to be gay because of my interests. I'm sure if I had turned out to be gay, my father would have treated me kindly and well, but my lack of natural interest in things he understood troubled him deeply. He didn't know how to be the father of someone so different from himself. He didn't think it was my fault, any more than if I'd been born mentally handicapped, but he was absolutely struggling to deal emotionally with the fact that his son wasn't really a normal male person, as far as he could see. He could tell I might grow up to be exactly the kind of man who might pay other men to change the oil in his car, rather than doing it himself every year or two. Dad was always afraid I would grow up to be a bad worker, too, as to tossing hay bales, chopping wood, fixing brakes, and building barns. And I did. It was like a contest. Dad tried to make sure I grew up to be good at and happy doing that kind of work, and I tried to make him give up on me being any good at it at all. And eventually, I won that one, hands down. When I was ten, my grandfather took my hand in his and contemplatively said to himself, A soft little hand, unused to work. He also told my parents, he's going to make his living from books instead of using his back. And this was, be quite clear, a criticism. And he was right. But to this day, from time to time, I sometimes sneakily chop firewood or fix something on my car or in my house. And it always comes as a great surprise to my dad. He never knows quite what to say. Sometimes he's so surprised, he forgets to even tell me how I really should have done it. As a child, one time I had a nasty flu and threw up in the sink, my father checking in to make sure I was okay, and looking in the sink told me, you know, you really don't chew your food enough. In retrospect, there are ways in which I am very like my father, chewing food aside. Wanting things done in a certain way for one, not feeling at home in groups or anywhere with undefined changing social expectations and perhaps a lot of noise and enthusiasm. Now, this album and podcast have drawn a pretty clear picture of the fact that in my 20s, I was changing how I live my life, on purpose. And lots of people from my church and circle of relations earnestly, hopefully prophesied my doom, told me they prayed for my soul that the Lord wouldn't speak through me, yet kind of needed him to in order that their worldview would remain consistent. 
Remember that the God we worship spoke primarily through death, the death of his son, and countless stories of people in the Bible being struck dead in various colorful ways, and the deaths of young people in our meeting who had been having too much fun partying. Other churches found all sorts of things in the Bible about love and God's grace and mercy and goodness, but we tended to dwell on all the death and punishment of sin stuff. Things got a bit tense between my parents and I in my 20s. It wasn't just that I was starting to tiptoe towards doing these forbidden things like going to the movies, drinking a beer, or going to see live music. My sister did that stuff too. It was that I didn't see anything wrong with it. At least my sister seemed to know shame. Looked like she did. They could hope for her to eventually see reason, repent of her youthful indiscretions and wanderings, and return to the fold. But me? I was clearly going somewhere different. On purpose and for good where my sister got defensive and evasive and embarrassed when people like my folks brought up her worldly extracurriculars while away at university, I got argumentative and stubborn about mine. I doubled down, like I'd been thinking about the issues and had been waiting to discuss them, with a wholly unfair use of logic, Bible verses, precedent, and facts. Increasingly, a few sentences from me cut straight to their own doubts and the inconsistencies they struggled with too, and I'd casually speak their own doubts aloud with my own and they'd panic, terrified lest I, with my tricky logic and backwards knowledge of the Bible, might turn them into someone like me, a backslider, sliding back to somewhere I'd never been before and very much wanted to check out. I didn't just buy tickets to live music. I started performing at open stages and small amateurish events. Nothing big, but I went from carefully never being seen going into a bar while at university to being the entertainment in a bar at a university for part of the evening. I went from buying worldly music to going to a recording studio and making my own worldly music with genuine, bona fide worldly musicians and engineers. Worst of all was that I had brethren friends like Mark Vetter who shamelessly, disrespectfully questioned the Bible interpretations of the Hayhoe brothers, including their views on the two natures in the believer and proper brethren separation from worldly people and practices and the cherished old one-right-place theology still held by that one place even after three-quarters of that place had split off and formed several other one-places. It was difficult. They needed so much to believe there was only one correct place to worship Sunday morning, but their group had split, and they now needed to stoop to saying things like maybe the Lord was only with us and not with other people, or try to mock the idea that maybe the Lord had moved street addresses earlier this year, haha, all of which only made it fun for many of us, to increasingly laugh at all of it, at all of them. My church had never taught me that there's nothing spiritual in mocking people. There isn't, though. In my 20s, I was an inveterate mocker of things. I'd grown up on Weird Al Yankovic, Mad Magazine, and parodies of everything in general. It was the 90s, and many creatives my age were doing it. Did you like Charlie Brown as a kid? Trey Parker and Matt Stone had made South Park, in which similarly drawn little characters swore like truckers and farted fireballs. Remember Archie Bunker? Seth MacFarlane was making Family Guy. Saturday Night Live, Weird Al Yankovic, and Mad TV were all about making mocking, note-perfect parodies of everything. Kevin Smith and Quentin Tarantino were determined to take all things nerdy in 70s and 80s and make them 90s and swearier with more smoking. Doug said that Tarantino essentially combined violence with pop culture references and black suits. 
The Tarantino formula was violence plus style, Doug said. I wrote parodies of various brethren things, it must be admitted. Couldn't seem to help it. I was full to bursting with how increasingly quaint and ridiculous so much of my birth culture now seemed to my 90s cool 20-something sensibilities. And like I said, no one had taught me there was nothing spiritual about laughing at people. We laughed ourselves positively sick at meeting over how consistently stupid the children of Israel in the Old Testament and people like Peter and Thomas in the New Testament all clearly were all the time. How could they be so stupid? And I did the same thing in writing. Instructive pamphlets to the young beseeching us to dress and deport ourselves in a way that set us apart from this wicked, wicked world and its enticing blandishments were easy targets of mine. We all had our Gordon Hayhoe and Lloyd Judd and Bill Prost impressions. My roommate Dave had never heard Gordon Hayhoe speak in person before, but in a 90s recording I made which needed some indistinct brethren preaching going on in the background, Dave was easily able, after hearing a short sample of Gordon, of providing me with and so on. Hymns from the little flock got lampooned carefully by several of us, maintaining their Victorian style. I know I wasn't the only one to do that. I was actually kind of troubled to hear that the great beast, Plymouth Brethren raised Alistair Crowley of the Ozzy Osbourne song... had done disturbingly similar things in his teens a century earlier, writing an overtly pornographic parody of the Hymns for the Little Flock hymn book entitled Snowdrops in a Curate's Garden, in which the white snowdrops in question, seen on the green grass of the garden, were clearly the curate's own, well, you get the picture. This troubled me because that was going too far for me. No subtlety at all, even by 90s standards, 1990s anyway. But our group was so Victorian in the age of Nirvana, Oasis, and Radiohead. One Sunday morning, in July of 1993, I went out to the Breaking of Bread in Nepean, post-division, after having moved out from my folks. Now Sundays, a pamphlet called Messages of God's Love was given out in all the different languages all over the world. It was mainly for children, and was from the Brethren Publishing House Bible Truth Publishers, or BTP, as we commonly said, hence my song, Wasp Tent. Oh, BTP, jokes and novelties, come in and bring a friend, and you'll learn to shout out the world around. Cause we've got all the safe stuff, all the good stuff at low prices, and you know, the fun need never end. But how do you move in a wasp tent? Or do you move in a BTP? How do you move in a wasp tent?
mostly just brethren groups of various kinds distributed these pamphlets. When I went to Alaska to an unaffiliated open brethren group decades later, I was shocked to see messages of God's love and other BTP products had been flown in to hand out to kids in Palmer and Anchorage. Well, this Sunday, in the decimated Ottawa Assembly, the remaining teens were snickering like mad in the back of the meeting hall afterward. Something really had them going. I was 23 and too old for their nonsense, but check the situation out. The messages of God's love handed out to them that week for their edification had on the front an instructive children's story entitled Wild Whipped Cream. The teens were reading it aloud and failing to get through sentences of it without laughing. You see, just like those snowdrops in the curate's garden envisioned by Aleister Crowley a century before, these hormonal teens were imagining that the whipped cream in their Brethren Gospel pamphlet for children was a euphemism for something else entirely, something that shall not be mentioned in this podcast even once. An excerpt from Bible Truth Publishers' original pamphlet from 1993. Wild Whipped Cream Beth was holding the pressurized can of whipped cream over the strawberry shortcake, pressing the valve on the top this way and that, but no cream would come out. Then I tried. Still, no cream would come out. We gotta get this stuff out of here, said Beth. You can't serve strawberry shortcake without whipped cream. I know it, I agreed. It says not to puncture the can, but what else can we do? I know there's whipped cream in there, and we have to get it out, now! The Bible has very definite instructions for you, too. Are you obeying these instructions? They are from God. As we both leaned over the can, I poked a hole in it. A second later, we were looking at each other in amazement. Our faces, hair, arms, and clothes were covered with whipped cream. Some of it had shot past us and landed on the wall behind us, and even on the ceiling. Well, at least it's out of the can, I giggled. What do we do now? Beth mumbled through her coating of whipped cream. Well, we've got to get some of it on that shortcake. I know that. Stand still. Beth obediently stood still as I scraped the whipped cream from her face and arms onto the dessert. Then she started scraping whipped cream off of me. The shortcake looked pretty good. Well, this was too much for me to resist. Gilding the lily when the original was funny enough, I went home and made a parody of this tone-deaf, unintentionally hilarious porn pamphlet for children. In retrospect, many found my 23-year-old effort not nearly as funny or pornographic-sounding as the original. The idea with mine was to make it sound like it was going to get pornographic at any minute, but not actually say anything sexual at all. Not a single sex act or sexual organ was to be mentioned. The front page of my version read, Wild Whipped Cream. Beth was holding the pressurized can of whipped cream over the strawberry shortcake, pressing the valve on the top this way and that, but to no avail. No cream would come out. She held the can tightly between her firm thighs and pressed the tab with her long red-painted fingernails, gasping with the exertion. Beads of sweat glistened on her taut, sensuous body, and her full lower lip was held firmly in her even white teeth, wrinkles furrowing her cute little forehead. I tried too, cradling the can between my massive bicep and a swollen, pumped pectoral muscle until the veins stood out on my neck and looked near bursting. 
Boys and girls, have you ever spent hard-earned money on something that was supposed to be a whole lot of fun, but ended up being a waste of time? The Bible contains many, many verses which tell us that things in this world are usually mind-wrenchingly, excruciatingly fun, but are really very naughty indeed. The Bible is full of many words, some of them delightfully naughty, nearly as many words, in fact, as in Webster's Dictionary. It is usually black, mine is pink though, and about the size of a large carton of filter-tipped menthol cigarettes. Most people have a Bible, even Jack, who owns the beer store downtown, but how many do you think read their Bibles as regularly as they kill a six-pack of cold ones? The whole thing is out on video cassette, but most people don't have it, so maybe you should just steal one the next time you stay in a motel. It's full of stories of blood, decapitation, violence, harlotry, war, disease, and other cool things, so you should probably keep it between your mattress and the wall. Anyway, there was at that time a young guy who still came out to our meeting, having been raised in it, but he was treated as if he were shunned and under discipline, though he'd never been in a position to take communion to begin with, in order for them to then eject him from that position and treat him like this. He grew up being treated like he'd been kicked out, even though he'd never properly been in to begin with. That was not how the game is supposed to be played. You're supposed to get one chance at the game before you're kicked off the field. This guy was required to leave the meeting hall immediately after meetings and not socialize with us, but was required by his parents to attend meeting if he wanted them to pay his rent, that is. He was forbidden to stay for fellowship dinners and the various social events, though. I was being kind to him because I felt that this kind of treatment just isn't right, but did not share his love of smoking a lot of hash among doing various other things he was up to. So when he saw a copy of this pamphlet at my place, the only time he came over, I let him take a copy. There were only three copies ever made. I had one. I mailed one to Michael Vetter, and this guy took the third. Well, we had an argument at one point, and he was a mean little SOB with a disproportionate temper when he wasn't high, so he took this pamphlet and turned it into the leadership in the Nepean Assembly to get me kicked out. Kicking out was something they were reflexively doing left and right at this point. They'd had a division, and it just stepped up from there. There was almost no one left in that assembly at this time who wasn't kicked out. They took my childish mockery of the BTP pamphlet a couple years after I wrote it and kept it in a file of stuff they'd heard about or copied relating to me, my friends, and stuff I'd written until they wanted to formally kick me out a couple of years after that. Then they'd given me the third degree, looking to make me give up Mark Vetter to get him kicked out of his own assembly, and I wouldn't, and I paid a price for that. But that's what it took to lose my place in my birth culture forever. They didn't quite feel they could kick me out for life for going to see Shrek 2 at the movies, having a glass of wine with my meal in a restaurant either, but this, this was perfect. Like Socrates, I was found guilty of corrupting the young. The young unemployed hash smokers and worse in this case, grouped in with Mark Vetter as being a bad influence on young people in their 20s, though Mark himself didn't get kicked out for a few years. When Mark got kicked out, it was because he told his wife-to-be that, unlike our fathers had taught us, he could say no to sex. In fact, he said he could sleep in her bed all night, sleep just fine, and never lay a hand on her. And he did just that. So Mark eventually got kicked out and shunned globally for not having sex with the pretty woman he was about to marry. Brethren be like that sometimes. Nobody likes a show-off. And what was Mark Vetter? Gay? The elders were convinced that if we were drinking alcohol, we'd become alcoholics. If we were entertaining ourselves in this wicked world and being bad examples to other young people, 
The Lord would have to speak, and if that happened, someone young might die, they said. But a few years before Mark got punished by his church for not having sex with the woman he was engaged to, at my own inquisition, I was asked to write a letter of apology to the assembly for joking about the wild whipped cream story. And once I did, they used it as a confession from me that I'd written the thing to mock the nearly divinely inspired wild whipped cream story to begin with, and so they didn't believe it was a joke at all, but a clear, malicious association of the precious things of the Lord with the perversion and corruption of the wicked, evil world. The fact that I thought I could joke about it was evidence that I didn't take the Lord and his things seriously. What was I thinking? Counseling young people to steal Bibles? Would I be responsible for all the Bibles that would be stolen? Joking about alcohol and cigarettes? Would I be responsible for the young people taking up these habits? Was I insane? They were fairly certain I'd made up the word parody entirely just so I could do perverse things with language. I wasn't an English teacher at that point, but I did try to teach them what the word parody meant. They remained skeptical and unedified. Brethren groups aren't supposed to kick people out permanently and refuse to speak to them afterward, but I knew this was their common practice in Nepean, and as much as I tried to meet with them later and apologize for any offense caused, there was a certain relish and satisfaction clearly seen in how they counted me gone for good and triumphantly refused to discuss the matter with me for years afterward. I was a disrespectful, deceitful fount of rank wickedness. Try to mock the messages of God's love, would I? They'd shown me who was boss now, hadn't they? Defended the Lord's honor and glory. The Lord didn't have to worry about embarrassment so long as they were on the case. I wrote a letter to BTP, apologizing for the parody of the thing they had published. They wrote back saying they hadn't known about it and didn't really care, but of course it was the Lord who was offended by my actions and so I should deal with him and not them. Now, I'd live to see various people have to sit in the back for a few months because they'd had sex before or outside of marriage. It didn't matter if the sex was gay or straight. If you admitted to having it, you were out, in a manner of speaking. The Plymouth Brethren has never, in my experience, recognized same-sex marriages as legitimate. I've known leading members who taught stridently against letting our children go to the movies or listen to music with sexual content being read out of fellowship later for going to jail for sexually molesting those same people's children. I know of one guy who got read out for going to jail for having child pornography on his computer. These people are often allowed back in as full members of the Plymouth Brethren once they've done their time. But some things you don't tend to get let back in after being found guilty of. I've known of formerly popular Brethren speakers getting read out of fellowship permanently for disagreeing with the leaders on matters of theology or assembly administration. I've known of people being kicked out permanently for gossiping and engaging in social drama to such a degree as to dwarf the already significant amounts of that going on in our assemblies at the best of times. They never get let back in. Russell Rule got kicked out of his assembly for tape recording the administrative meetings because people kept lying about what was being said or not being said at them afterwards. Keep in mind, Russell was not secretly taping these meetings. He was just sitting there with the machine right on his lap taping them in plain sight. Basically, you could get excommunicated and shunned permanently as a wicked person for anything that embarrassed or annoyed the leadership of the Nepean Assembly. The Brethren jargon for that situation was bringing dishonor and shame to the name and glory of the Lord Jesus Christ and his testimony. You note that here, as usual, anything with the Lord's name on it subs in nicely for the Plymouth Brethren. 
bringing dishonor and shame to the name and glory of the Plymouth Brethren and their testimony. To my knowledge, I am the only person who was permanently excommunicated and shunned for life for satire, for my parody of the God-breathed, inerrant, divinely inspired wild whipped cream story. My father was quite annoyed with them and phoned to tell a man with a gratuitously Dutch name this, and the man was fine with dad being angry and fine with me being gone for good. This is how troublemakers were dealt with in Nepean. You officially branded them a wicked person and announced to the affiliated brethren assemblies in the whole world that if they did not honor this ruling and shun him, her, or them, that that whole assembly would in turn be deemed entirely populated with wicked people, connected with evil, and shunned by the rest of the brethren world entire. They'd done it with the division years earlier, shunning those assemblies who objected to their shunning of 60% of their own assembly for disagreeing about who precisely needed to get shunned, and they did it with me too. I was an afterthought, just a bit of mopping up afterward. They tried to get some dirt on Mark Vetter to pass on to the elders in his assembly and kicked me to the curb when I didn't cough up any. Ultimately, I was told my brethren were not comfortable with me worshipping my God among them, and that was enough. A gentle reminder that they firmly believed that there was no other church at which I could worship where God would accept my worship. Either way, I knew which side the wind was blowing. I knew what had happened to my father. I knew I was now a wicked person, officially deemed so by my birth culture in the entire world for life. Someone the Bible said not to even eat with. Someone Charles Hayhoe extended his left hand to at meeting and awkwardly shook your right with so as to avoid extending the right hand of fellowship, Galatians 2 and 9. If we'd had a pope, there would have been a papal bull to that effect, though I'd made this pamphlet for my own amusement, not nailed it to a church door in Wittenberg or something like that. There wasn't exactly a fatwa declared, but for the rest of my life, I have been excluded from miscellaneous brethren weddings, meals, Bible conferences, funerals, and so on, depending on the feelings of those intending to be in attendance. So back in the day, I did what I could. I needed a name for my pretend band, who was pretend making my albums in the studio with me, and Christian Pizza just wasn't cutting it anymore. So I decided to spell it like a rapper and call my act The Wicked People. A lot of people think this is a stupid name. I tell them, blame Wim van Hofwigen, not me. He knows about stupid names firsthand and signed a registered letter branding me with this one for life. But I have found that you get in much more trouble if you do annoying things other people wouldn't do than if you do things they would have or have already done. I think this is why right-wing fundamentalist Christians famously pay such repeatedly lengthy attention to the subject of gay sex in sermons given in megachurches. Either they're preaching against something they feel is wrong that they would want to do themselves and are using it to keep that closet door jam shut, or else they're cherry-picking a particular thing that they wouldn't be tempted to do and can therefore afford to wax sanctimonious about. But I don't get in trouble for the usual things most people do. An example from today. In a fit of pique at seeing the same old Netflix ad in my Twitter feed for the thousandth time, saying they noticed my feed didn't have enough positivity in it, and was I willing to pay them to add more? I was annoyed. And this was Twitter. This evening. I could have called Netflix rude names, accusing them of being Nazis or child molesters or murderers or cannibals or reptilian monsters from space or libtards or white supremacists or something. But no, I was simply tempted to tweet, Stop commenting on my private Twitter feed. Go f*** yourselves. None of that would have gotten me in any trouble with Jack Dorsey at all. That's just normal Twitter. 
how dare you comment on my feed, go f yourself, would have gone quite unnoticed. But I was raised better than that. So I tweeted, how dare you comment on my feed, go jump down a deep well. So now, my Twitter says only, Hi, wicked person. Your account at wicked person has been locked for violating the Twitter rules, specifically for violating our rules against promoting or encouraging suicide or self-harm. You may not promote or encourage suicide or self-harm. When we receive reports that a person is threatening suicide or self-harm, we may take a number of steps to assist them, such as reaching out to that person and providing resources such as contact information for our mental health partners. If you are having thoughts of suicide or self-harm or suffer from depression, we encourage you to please reach out to someone and request help. Our safety center has a list of resources you can consult for a variety of reasons, including depression, loneliness, substance abuse, illness, relationship problems, and economic problems. You can find those resources here. Please know that there are people out there who care about you and that you are not alone. Your Twitter account will remain locked for 12 hours. I suppose I should have just prayed that the staff as a whole at Netflix and Twitter as well, while I was at it, should all die of AIDS. I'm told that's the Christian thing to do. The song lyrics for this one come from that time in my 20s when my family were very disappointed in my official documented failure to remain a respected, accepted, viable brethren marriage prospect. Did I forget to mention that bit? Every brethren or brethren-adjacent young woman I spoke to in my 20s was warned off me by brethren women. That still sometimes happens. Brethren women who were being regularly beaten by their boyfriends and confiding in me about that because I believed them received phone calls from brethren aunts warning them not to talk to me because I was dangerous. Woo. So they did what they could to keep me single, and it pretty much worked. That and what my father called my problem personality. He said I got it from him, though not any great facility with fixing cars. It was why I had no friends, he said. Dad didn't like my friends. He said Mark was evil, never knew what to say to Bill, Dave, or Troy. Mark said that every child needs, whether they're children of Israel from the Old Testament or not, to know that they go into their adult life with their parents' support and blessing. Mark said if parents don't know to tell their kids that A, they predict great success for them, and B, they wish great success for them, that the kid should ask for it. Mark said it was unfinished business, a skipped stage in emotional and social development and the parent-child relationship otherwise. I got this under my skin for no particular reason at that point in time, and shortly after I got shunned by my group and my folks weren't terribly happy about how many worldly friends I had, and what sort of brethren friends I had, and how we spoke, and what made us laugh, and what we questioned, I asked my parents for this parental blessing. Blessing in the sense of well-wishing, their support. I was coming up on 30. Mom just said no. Mom doesn't commit to anything much. Oh, well, maybe she does. No, no, she doesn't, I don't think. She didn't want to be seen to be associated with the direction my life and the lives of my friends were taking. She liked a lot of my friends, and they liked her, but she didn't want to be seen to support us outright, either, in any clear, committal way. She was backing away from this particular dumpster fire. Dad tried. At first, he tried to avoid it, but it sounded very biblical and reasonable and like something a father should do. So given the Old Testament template of A, predicting the best for his son, and B, wishing the best for his son— my dad finally said to me, Your mother and I are 
prouder of you than you think. And that was it. I was blessed. I'll take it. All of this was from when my father started talking to me again. There was a bit of a silent time in the middle there. Just like I'd been forbidden talking about the Bible with brethren people my age, my father wanted me to never mention the Bible under his roof, not with the unscriptural way I viewed it. So I stopped coming to visit entirely. Albert Hayhoe had taught us to never go into any building where our discussing of the Word of God was not welcome. Dad said my talk about the brethren and the division and the Bible was upsetting your mother, which is how he said it upset him. How Dad talks about his feelings is he gives them to my mother. Mom just zones out when she's in the middle of anything she doesn't want to hear. She doesn't even need to leave the room to be very noticeably not there. Now, what I wanted to show in this song back in the day was how, in brethren circles, they responded to my changing life direction, my new liberty and freedom, my lack of proper shame and fear, how brethren people, at least in my circle and definitely in my family, had this habit of continually criticizing us, but all without ever finishing a... So the lyrics started out kind of, you know what? You can't. Can't just... It's not that, because you need to have to... Because you should just stop the... And then go back to... You know, there's nothing quite so... As never doing anything that anyone could ever... Or feel that it's too... Trouble is, you can write that kind of thing as a lyric. But if you try to sing that, it's always on beat. And there is a beat, so you can't do choppy, awkward silences that draw attention to what's missing like that. And it didn't exactly work out, but I did it anyway. It started out as an acoustic bit that was supposed to sound like it was getting interrupted or not finishing quite. It started out very quiet and subtle, but it seemed to get angrier and angrier and angrier for no particular reason. Well, for one thing, it was satisfying to play it like that. Also, there was a mix of the resentment I was feeling coming my way from the Brethren Collective for having betrayed them all and forced them to absolutely have to make me one of their many outsiders and outcasts. resentment for being rejected by them like this. George hammered away in his music store after hours. I added just a couple of lead guitars.
and eventually the tide of disapproval crashing over my head and drowning me in dire prophecies about the doomed direction of my depraved life got represented in the sound of literal ocean waves in the song. Just be just We can all 